Hello and welcome to episode number five of the Guitar Hang Podcast. I'm your host, John Stancor. Today's guest is the fretless monster himself, Tony Franklin. You may know Tony as the basis for The Firm, Blue Murder, and White Snake. Tony's also a renowned touring and recording bassist, as well as a clinician and educator. Yeah, it's everything that we are, everything that we've absorbed and right from, you say, right from the beginning makes us what we are as players, not what strings we use. That's just a reflection of what's coming from within and uh, is the, the vehicle, if you like, to be able to get it out. It's funny, somebody asked me, on social media, do you uh, have a preference for um, solid state or or tube or, or digital? Seems like you've used all three. And I said, well, they each have their strengths. I, I like them for different reasons. It doesn't really matter. Some of the, the, the Fender stuff these days, the digital amps, the rumble stuff is fantastic. Yeah. But I love their old tube amps as well. But at the end of the day, it's just expressing what yeah. we are, isn't yeah. it? It's not a, it's, that isn't the sound. Yeah, we would hate to be limited just because we at one point stated that we really liked one thing, so we had to stick with that. You know, it's kind of like saying, I love steak. So therefore, people would see you out at a restaurant eating sushi and be disappointed that you weren't eating. St- it's all there for you to enjoy, you know. Yes. Having said that, I've used the same make and same Fender bass essentially <laughs> right. with uh, for most of my career, and uh, that one that one sticks. And so, people would be more surprised if they saw me on something else. As would I, because it's the only kind of bass that I own. Don't even own a jazz <laughs> right. bass. So it's just is, how it is. Is it an is it an uh, the fretless bass an outgrowth of the fact that you're incredibly melodic sensibility and somebody that uh, probably is very keen as the, into the song and the the bass is your your voice so the fretless is the thing that allows you to speak clearly in a voice that resonates with it, it would it be that it it, it... I came to that. That was not originally the 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 inspiration. I mean, you know, I heard Jaco Pastorius in the late seventies, and uh, just heard something in the fretless bass that I hadn't heard right. in bass before. A presence, really, and um, not even really knowing what it was, other than that it's a fretless bass, and I needed to have one. And so, as I've so I've been playing it for for decades now, and it still is evolving for me. And it's not about the uh, the fancy stuff that you can do. It is very much. It's almost like on a song, you have the the vocal melody, you have the vocals, but then the bass is the only other really mono instrument uh, in the band, other right. than you know, maybe a trumpet or sax but that takes a solo it's not playing throughout and so the the bass is an incredible opportunity to be a counterpoint for the melody Mm -hmm. for the vocals and that's how i approach it it's of course it's a rhythmical uh instrument and it's uh it's got to hold down the root and maintain the the low end and and maintain the groove and all that but beyond that I I see it as I say that as a a wonderful counterpoint to the to the lead to the to the vocal, right. and the the fretless 
really allows me to to be more vocal like i always liken the fretless bass to to the vocal it doesn't have the limitation the vocal doesn't have a limitation of frets right. it's very free flowing if you want to express yourself you know, vocally, even just talking, if you get excited, yeah, yeah, that's great, <laughs> right. that's great. Or if you're down, you know, you're, oh, wow, that's a drag. And so it, the, the fretless has that that emotion to it. And so, yeah, that's all I can say is it's very, uh, very um, vocal and expressive-like, and it's, uh, yeah, you can just have so much fun with it. But, but it's, I never really occurred that didn't occur to me until later i guess i was just going on pure love and instinct for it because the the fretless just i just really loved it because it was very felt very free to me and i didn't consciously think oh here's a thing that's not been done in rock music before let me uh let me do that just because it's different no it just felt very natural and and organic so I stuck with it, and it still uh, still fascinates me, and and is evolving. Right. When you're when you're writing, are you uh, using a myriad of instruments to put ideas down, and uh, with the bass being again the 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 support instrument, or possibly a featured instrument on your own tunes, or are you maybe writing from a piano perspective or acoustic guitar perspective, or when you're coming up with I t- yeah. Great question. Um, sorry, cut no, you no. off. I, That's great. I, I knew where it was going. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, the bass is usually not the instrument I write upon, and I um, very rarely, though sometimes, will have an idea of the bass line. Uh, McCartney, apparently, uh, especially for Sgt. Pepper's, and as as their, their albums evolve, would put the bass on last right. afterwards. Right. He would go in and record uh, after all the vocals are done because it's that same approach. Right. It's like, you know, sometimes uh, bass lines come instinctively along with the vocals, but quite often I like to see where the vocal is, is sits and to know the song and then weave amongst that. So I very rare that I will write a song first on the bass it's usually acoustic guitar or a keyboard as you mentioned Uh, because but but even a step before that i will most likely write it from a head onto paper right and uh i gotta mute mute my phone because the sherwood foresters keep calling me that's my ringtone i don't know if it's picking up but it's uh (laughs) That's all good. It's anyway, all good. it's probably not so bad. But uh, yeah, so uh, quite often I'll, I'll awake from a, a dream or I'll have an idea at the most inconvenient moment, like in the shower or driving in the car or sitting on the toilet is a favorite <laughs> where you get a musical idea. Right. And so, or on, a, or on an airplane where there is no musical instrument. So I actually evolved a system which is based on proper music notation. Um, where I can write without having an instrument and without having music paper, where I can write it straight to paper. And I actually like doing that because it removes any any riffs or grooves or patterns that you get stuck into with writing. Because, you know, we're always trying to avoid those ruts that we get into where we keep playing the same old riff and we tend to write around that. When I'm writing straight from my 
musical mind, my creativity straight to paper, it's limitless. And then I sometimes have to figure out how to play it afterwards. And so uh, that more often, probably half the time is how I write straight to paper. And then the other times I will sit down either with a keyboard or a guitar. Yeah. As far as the, uh, are you, are you hearing a particular melodic idea? I mean, do you, are you somebody that sings a lot or are you, are you coming up with certain hooks melodically or maybe lyrical ideas that are coming all? And I know most songwriters say that there's no one way that things happen. There's not a specific thing. It, it little pieces and germs of ideas come from a variety of different avenues. I, I'm suspecting that's the same for you. That's yeah. it. Yeah, that that is it. And uh, I I write lyrics, I sing, and so I, I I can do all the instruments. And and more often than not, it will be spark off with an idea of of what the song is about, and possibly even like a chorus, uh, a hook, or something uh, lyrically. Um, to me, what the song is about it dictates everything. It dictates the mood if it's a, if it's going to be a, a song about I don't know death or or love <laughs> or uh, you know breakup or uh, anything anything like that or an event. I mean, emotional events mm-hmm. will often spark off that. I, I wrote a song after nine eleven called "Never Be the Same," mm-hmm. and um, and so you know once that once i get that then it almost writes itself but to true to what you said quite often a little fragment will come that you know is something it's a spark i call it and um it will ignite something and then i just remain open it's there's a great book called talks with great composers book written in uh, actually the late 1800s, but wasn't released until I think 1954 or something like that. Direct interviews with Brahms and Brahms lived a long life and he knew a lot of the original great composers, Mendelssohn and Liszt and Puccini, uh, Strauss and all that. And they all had the same, and they in turn knew a lot of the Beethoven and uh, and and went way back and they all had a similar experience writing where they would go into almost this hypnotic state meditative state where they they were compelled to write the world would just kind of had to stand still at that point uh i'm 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 not saying i'm on on the any level that they are but i do have and i can relate to that experience where you have to write uh, you know inspiration can be very fleeting it can if you don't get it it can be gone and never never to return <laughs> right. and so uh you know but quite often i'll have a little fragment of an idea and it will not even end up being used in the song right. it will it will just be like the gateway if you like and so as those ideas come i just scribble them down and in any form or fashion hopefully with as much information as possible so you can recall it because quite often it'll come in the middle of the night. I won't even remember any of it the next day. And so I'm relying on those notes. So every little piece of information can be a little irritating at times because you can be in the middle of the night. You don't feel like writing. You know better. Right. You get, you write it down 
and you you get all the inspiration that you can down and then uh yeah, it can be you can be up for 45 minutes just doing that and then you got to try to go back to sleep again as you're trying to go back to sleep again make sure the notepad's there because little few more ideas will come i love yeah. it i love that process to me that is um was as Brahms and they said they're in touch with the divine right. at that yeah. point. There's something bigger than us going on. The universe is opening up a little gateway, mm-hmm. a doorway for us to glimpse because Brahms insisted that his his interview not be released until at least fifty years after his passing. Right. Reason being that um a lot of the great composers were not recognized or acknowledged until after their passing. Mozart, Beethoven, they had some success, but their, their success has, has flourished many years after their passing. They were truly appreciated. So he, didn't, he, he was reluctant to talk about it because it's kind of sacred to right. him. And so he, they would, he didn't release it until many years after his, uh, after his passing. It is a little bit like that. It is a little bit personal and sacred, right. and uh, yeah. you know, it's. Uh, but oh, I love it, and I think um, you know this during this time of reflection and lockdown <laughs> right. and more time at home than we've uh, all had, uh, more than we've had in the last ten years, probably. I've been really writing a lot, and right. it's been. I think there's going to be. It's really set a course. That's for beautiful. Yeah. What's What's to come? Yeah. So. Yeah. It. it and the fretless has been part of that. It's like, oh, what? How does the the bass really fit into this? Because uh, I've become a lot more kind of thoughtful with with the notes. It's not about, and of course, David Gilmore is the king of thoughtful notes. Isn't yeah, he? uh, he's you he's know? certainly. Uh, if not if nothing else, he's he's he, he's always wanting to. It seems to think about what would serve the song. You know what? What? Yep. What will elevate the song if there? If that means no guitar solo, no guitar solo. If it means a very melodic solo, it's it's very interesting when you see an audience that's singing a guitar solo. I just find that that's a beautiful thing when that happens. When you see you know, an audience mouthing the notes to the solo from Comfortably Numb or uh, Mother, so it's it's a quite a testament to somebody's melodic or even a bass lines or things that are uh, incredibly malign. It's it, it, that's the highest thing uh, that any musician can achieve is to, for somebody to equate what you're playing with something vocal like, because I think at our best, when we're performing at our highest, the best that we can do is to be vocal like, whether it's Jocko or whomever. Yes. You know, yes. I'm just thinking of some of the faster lines that I've, uh, <laughs> I've played and that Jocko played. Right. And- People try and sing along with that, but, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whatever. But um, yeah, no, absolutely, it is. And uh, you know, you become. I think you know, as you become older as well, you become more thoughtful. Right. And to me, I, I, when I'm writing, I pretty much write pop songs, pop rock, right. alternative mm-hmm. folk, no boundaries really, but uh, commercial stuff. Sometimes with a little bit of an edge. And to me. That is a true art form in itself, to be able to write a memorable song that hits you. There's a great documentary you may have seen at Hitsville. Yeah. It's about, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's about uh, Motown yeah. and features Barry Gordy and uh, Smokey Robinson. Yeah. 
and you know, Barry Gordy was, oh, you know, it's got to hit you in the first t- 10 seconds yeah. or, you know, it, it's out. They wouldn't accept it. And so, uh, you know, writing a, 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 a pop song, a popular song with substance to me is, uh, is a real art. Right. It really is. So. Yeah. Anyway, I'm kind of curious if, uh, some of the great Motown, if, if, uh, if Jamerson or Joe Osborne or any of those guys ever cut their bass lines after the other parts, or if it went down with the rhythm, because it seems like some of it, like Bernadette, the, the bass line, but Jamerson played is so incredibly melodic. And it's, it, it just seems like the, if he improvised that on, as the, as the rhythm was happening, as the tune was evolving, I would just be amazed because it was such a beautiful, if you just listen to the isolated bass line, which is, one of my favorite things to do on YouTube is just listening to things that are isolated. Uh, it just is all inspiring. Well, the thing to remember as well is that back then the, there's very little multi-tracking yeah. and um, they were doing the vocals all together. They were doing the whole band right. together and they would do as many takes as was needed Right to get the perfect, the perfect uh, song, <laughs> right. take. So they, it would probably get into 50, 100 yeah. takes. So by then, Jameson knows the song inside out. Right. And so he's, he gets past that point. That's true, yeah. Not, not needing to look at the chart, and he's freely improvising. And, uh, you yeah. know, but he was, regardless, he was yeah. he was something else. Yeah. It uh, The other thing that strikes me is that uh, – there seems to be fewer, uh, there's some amazing young musicians, but I don't hear them name checking a wide variety of, th- it, it seems like there's a, and maybe it's always been this way to pick musical styles, almost like you would pick a sports team and, and, and be, ah, I like this and this is my, and only this, you know, it's, it's very rare when you have somebody that say like really progressive metal that also has checked out Warren Zevon or John Prine or um, Del McCory or any blue gray, you know, a wide variety of things. And it's like, there's so much, I find that I have to go backwards and check out all the stuff that I've missed to find new, exciting, good stuff because I've, you can only listen to so much music, but it seems like there's so much behind in years past that maybe didn't get the recognition or maybe it, it always has. And I just missed it, but there's so much good stuff. It's I'll never stop. If I tried a different genre every week, I'd still not get to it all. And it seems like it's a shame to be pigeonholed into a particular thing and say, kind of like that steak sushi thing I was talking about where you have to pick one thing and live with that for a while. And that seems like where maybe where your inspiration is coming from, because you've listened to so much, that you don't know quite where your inspiration is going to come from. If you map, if you went back and listened to a song that uh, you wrote, you, you may say, well, I know where I got the initial idea, but maybe I don't know where I, all these other things came from. Yeah. Yeah. And I've reflected on that a lot too, because it's funny because as far as a rock bass player, bass player who's pretty versatile, you know, playing a lot of different styles and all that. I did not check out a lot of the 
contemporary music, a lot of the, the various rock music, which is, especially in America, now bear in mind, I, I grew up in England and all my informative musical years were over there. Um, I, I didn't really get into a lot of the, what you would expect, but I did have a very broad musical upbringing in, in as much as I, I studied classical music. I studied, um, musical theater, meaning Rogers and Hammerstein, mm -hmm. Gilbert and Sullivan, right. you know, the classic, uh, uh, film music and, and theater music of the time. I played a lot of those in theaters back in the day. And I was also really drawn to, to song writers, the British ones, um, uh, there, there's uh, there's one called Gil Gilbert Gilbert O'Sullivan, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and uh, whoa, some great songs, very a lot of emotional content that went into them, and ABBA. I mean, I was big oh, into yeah. ABBA back in the day, and Queen, and and all that, and a lot of the things that you know. Led Zeppelin came later. I was like um, really put off with them at a younger mm -hmm. age for you know because I was so young. Could, couldn't grasp them at that point. <laughs> Fast forward to uh, <laughs> right. playing with Jimmy Page, and I still hadn't heard Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> right. it's, it's, yeah. it's crazy. But um, now, I've, of course, I've, I've studied them greatly and toured with Jason Bonham, mm -hmm. as you know, and so I've got inside their music. But, you know, I, I haven't seen the whole movie, but there's that great movie that, that Jimmy did and there's some outtakes from that, which are gems of uh, It Might Get Loud. Right, yeah, with the edge. Where Jack he's Boy, talking yeah. about, yeah, back in the day when he was doing a lot of recording sessions, early 60s, and he grew up, uh, you know, late 50s, uh, listening to every bit of guitar music that he could get his hands on. And... Um, and so he really, really studied, uh, got inside the guitar specifically. And, um, you know, it's whatever it is that you listen to, it's, uh, I think you just, you do have to be broad. Right. But at the same time, you, you're only drawn what you're drawn to. Right. I mean, it's, um, for years, I was just into into Queen and nothing else. I guess if you're into only Queen, it's quite a broad palette to draw. Yeah, I mean, from. if you're going to pick a band to <laughs> make a steady diet, I mean, you get a little bit of everything. That's a, it's a very diverse menu. Yeah. yeah, I mean, they had the vaudeville, mm -hmm. they had the musical theater, right. they had the hard rock uh, anthems, the operatic stuff, and yeah, it's very very broad. But yeah, I do draw on a lot of that and i i like i like melody and i like unexpected changes and and a bit more kind of uh chord changes and all that and and things that you wouldn't necessarily expect and i i find it's a very british thing right. queen gilbert o'sullivan even um even elton john who i was not a big follower of mm -hmm. Um, but you know, it's very, it is very melodic and, and Rogers and Amstein, South Pacific and King and <laughs> yeah. I and Oklahoma. I just adore that stuff. Sorry with the French. And the music that's, was oh, sorry Ducks with the French on top. And and better scurry when that. Yeah. Yeah. My parents were, well, my mom specifically was really into that kind of stuff as a kid. So yeah. Oh, she had a yes. little uh, yeah, little organ with a little book sitting on it, and I would page through it and learn, try to learn these little 
songs and it had a little button it could make major or minor as little cheesy little organ things but yeah i was you know even before rock i was into burt Bacharach and uh writing for dion warwick uh, one less bell to answer and all you know uh it does inform you melodically because you if you're listening to those songs you can't help but the the melodies are so powerful so yes. Memorable. Yes, and also how the how the accompaniment, the chords, right. uh, change to support that. Right. I mean, that to me is is what makes that magic. That little those that little bit of tension and and like, ooh, what was that? You right. know, instead of just instead of there's there's power to use in three chords. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't get me right. wrong. But if you can throw in a little little shift, uh, like how George Harrison in uh, My Sweet Lord, oh, you know, yeah. essentially it's just a, you know, the um, minor to the four chord, right. the major four chord. But uh, but then he throws in a diminished chord, uh, <laughs> a naughty chord. Yeah, that little yeah. diminished chord in there. Which is like wow, you know that really took it to a another place, and so it's knowing when and how to use that stuff. And I think what all my musical upbringing and and listening did was give me. Uh, and I'm not good on jazz chords. I'm not a jazz player by any means, but um, and I don't know anything about modes. Sorry, everybody, <laughs> right. uh, I don't know the first thing about them. Um, but what this my upbringing did was allowed me uh, to be able to hear a melody and when to add that little magical rub chord right. that gets you away from the three chords. Still, a lot of the songs are based on three chords, but then you join them together right. in little, yeah. little, little scrapes. Yeah, when you finally <laughs> discover that missing chord, if it's a minor six chord or whatever it might be, or this really cool inversion of a chord, or the idea of just when you're a guitar player and you learn that diminished chord and you learn you can move it down each three frets and back up again. I was like, ooh, wow. But it, you're yeah. exposed to that at a young age through, I mean, I remember hearing a, a diminished melody from the TV show Mission Impossible. And the first time I played on the guitar, it was like, oh, man, that's the sound from that TV show. So it's funny what you hang your hat on or the augmented chord as it's ascending in minor third. You kind of go, oh, that's the thing I would hear when they're climbing the mountain or when Batman is ascending the side of the wall. You hear this augmented triad going up and and, uh, and third, you know, so so it's it's interesting what you relate those sounds to when you don't have a word like an augmented chord or a diminished chord you just go oh that's the batman thing theme or oh that's the thing for mission impossible and then you come to find out that the guys that are arranging for those tv shows were also film composers that were you know just doing that stuff to make extra income and they were putting really cool stuff in those tv shows oh yeah yeah and that's that's what gives it the depth and the the longevity and the, the 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 stuff that keeps you listening again, right. and and it still sounds good afterwards. So uh, you know, many years later. So uh, yeah. So uh, I've I, I I really see. I mean, I love playing. I love touring. I love recording. Those things will never stop. 
but the writing to me is like these these next 10 20 years i i just want to get as much of that out as as possible so that it's uh yeah don't who was it that said dr wayne died don't don't die with your music still inside <laughs> get it out yeah <laughs> i'm gonna have to live till i'm about 125 at this rate well it you never know i mean but by the time that we're of that age that it, it might be quite uh i've heard it said that it quite could possibly in the next 40 or 50 years people might live to be i don't know what who knows what the quality of life would be, but it would be, if we can still play, that's a, that's a beautiful thing to be thinking about uh, for the next, we can get another 40, 50, 60 years. That'd be awesome. Um, oh yeah, absolutely. But the, the number of uh, songwriters that you've, that you've worked with uh, singers and songwriters have been uh, out, outstanding. Everybody is, is on from a different spectrum from uh, Roy Harper Jimmy and um, Paul Rogers and David Coverdale and the, the, are there any things that you could specifically say were big inspirations or uh, things that maybe you weren't aware of about the songwriting process or just making records or anything that was an epiphany for you when you were so many, so many. Seriously, you got to remember when I was. Uh first started recording and working with the firm i was 22 mm-hmm. um, with roy harper i was younger than that um from about 20 years old and so roy well at that point up until then my writing and my song awareness was very i want to say square very you know very compartmentalized and you know there's this chord and this change and this tempo and everything roy was the first one that i remember where he had complete disregard for the time that what was proper what was proper what was musically proper the lyrics dictated what the music was going to be and to me it's like wow that's that was a whole new concept mm-hmm. meaning that he he will call himself a poet before he calls himself a, a songwriter right. and so the 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 lyrics and the meter of it was the most important thing and so musically that meant that things would often stretch or there'd be a bar of five or a bar of three or seven or something thrown in in the middle of it to accommodate that without him even thinking twice about it. And he would do it consistently. That's the thing. He had it. So that it was, I remember my, my first album I did with him was a work of heart. And that was in 1980, 82, sorry. Um, I forget now. No, 82. There mm-hmm. we go. And um, there's a, the, the title song it was called work of heart, but it's, there's a song within that called no one ever gets out alive. And there's a, there's a bar of five in it, five eight, and um, the drummer at the time he did he ended up not doing all the album, but uh, he we played Glastonbury together in 1982. So my first real gig, first big gig, it was Glastonbury oh, Festival, wow. quarter of a million people, <laughs> and it felt wonderful. Oh, I, I can imagine. It. Yeah. And um, <laughs> and uh, 
But there's one part where this bar of five comes in, and the only way that Daryl, the drummer, could do it, and I had to watch him, and we'd be like, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, one. It'd be like every time, it's the only way we could get it. And I pointed it out to Roy, I said, hey, you know, there's a, a bar of five in there, not really at that point grasping what it was all about with him. And he said, said, I have no idea. What what would you mean? I said, well, I I said, theoretically, it's it's kind of, uh, you know, a little odd. It's not usual that. However, I said it. And uh, (laughs) I said, I I don't want to know. I don't want to know because it's it's how it is. And... uh, you know, that's, right. that's, that's how I, how I do it. And so it's like, wow, that was, it was fascinating to me that, that it was a complete shift in writing perspective for me. And that's when I started to really realize the importance and the power of lyrics. It's like the music is there to support right. the lyrics. It's supposed, yeah. it, we know that now it's there to support the vocals. Well, quite often, um, you know, especially especially guitar-driven stuff, they will write the song and they'll write all the riffs and everything, and then they'll think, okay, we need to add some lyrics to this. To me, which, you know, some great songs have come from that. Don't get me wrong. But um, to me, they're, they're created at the same time. The music supports the, the emotion and, and the, the lyrics. Right. And uh, that, so Roy shifted that for me, and not only shifted it, but shifted it, it's like, yeah, so what if there's a bar of 7 or 11 or 13 <laughs> right. in there? If the song flows and is supporting the lyrics, then it's right. right. Jimmy, it prepared me for working for Jimmy because Jimmy Page is the master of those riffs where you never quite know where where the one yeah. is or there's an odd little measure like in Over the Hills and Far Away, those little bits that feel so great. But you try and work out what they are. It's like, whoa, that's that's a little strange. Right. Uh, but it feels so good. And that is the magic of uh, Jimmy there, where those odd little riffs that turned around somehow, and you don't know how the heck it happened, right. but it did, and it was magic. And I've never known anybody else like that, as far as Jimmy Page is concerned. You know, people ask me, uh, 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 the, the burning question, isn't it? Jeff Beck, Eric Clapton, or Jimmy Page? It's always Jimmy for me, not because he was technically the best, but because of his ideas and his scope and his songwriting right. and his vision and uh, and the sounds and the production that he brought to it. Um, yeah, and those riffs that, that just uh, it blew me away with all that stuff, which I would not have been able to have done without Roy. It just took me, got me ready for that. You know, if I hadn't had Roy in between and did three or four albums with him before working with Jimmy, and then we did the album together, whatever happened to Jugular. And it was like, yeah, yes. And that's where Jimmy and I connected and the firm kind of went from there. But so those were the real two pivotal moments. And then seeing Jimmy work in the studio, of course, yeah, to me, it all felt very, very natural, but I didn't realize what a blessing, what a privilege it was to have a front row seat to watch him, Jimmy, create in the studio. Right. I was one of the few that was there when he was laying down his solos because he was very comfortable with me there because I wasn't like this 
I wasn't a Zeppelin freak. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I knew nothing about them. I didn't know who John Paul Jones was. I didn't know that he played keyboards as well as right. bass. Uh, I happened to do that with the firm because the music needed it and I could play keyboards. So no idea that D John Paul Jones did that and as well as he did. So, you know, it's been a, quite a journey, really, just being true to the music. Right. It's always the music for right. us. And, um, you know, to be able to see Jimmy record and watch him go in and find the sweet spot where the where the, the room and the mic and the amp just all sounded great and magic. And he'd say, okay, we're going to put the mic here. It could be in the middle right. of nowhere, but that was the sound. Right. And that's how he created a lot of those sounds, not with effects, but the right mic placement, off access, down the hall, up on the ceiling, combination of them all. That was the sound. Yeah. A lost art, a lost art, especially in the digital realms yeah. where we find the plug-in and we, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, with off axis. Oh, it must be just like that. Yeah, but, his know. whole distance equals depth thing. and Yes. Know. And yes. he had a ringside seat in all those formulative years. He and big Jim Sullivan in the studios doing, I mean, and he's young and inquisitive and, and has a mind for that. And as influenced by Les Paul as he is, uh, Cliff Gallup, uh, you yeah. know, so he it's kind of a natural thing, I, I would think, for him to to be equally as adept as a producer, engineer, as a, as a guitar player. It's just because of all of his influence and that that time when he came up. Um, I, oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's when you had to be creative and resourceful and, and, and create sounds in the studio because you didn't have, you know, it was done at the time. It was done live. It was done, uh, you know, at this effect. He was one of the first to, to commission the building of a, of a overdrive pedal, the first one, right. because uh, he was hearing that sound. Yeah. Um, I'm sure that made the... You know, that they use on was communication yeah, breakdown yeah. you know that nasty uh the solo on that and all that <laughs> yeah. it's like yeah you know, that's what he was hearing right. he was he was hearing something once again it's the music that dictated it so you know that's i guess it creativity and songwriting is <laughs> is it but also to have for him to have the ultimate band in led zeppelin right. Um, because there were no limitations with that band. They had their musical experience was and, and palette was so broad right. and they were so skilled as musicians. They could go anywhere and could have complete freedom. I caught a glimpse of that with the firm, but not to that degree because you realize that, you know, that, that Zeppelin were just so in tune with each other mm -hmm. and uh, musically and creatively. And I did, I caught a glimpse of that, especially live with the firm because uh, Jimmy and I were, he would stretch out the solos on the songs and uh, I'd be right there with him, pushing back. And it was just like this, every night there was this musical conversation and the fretless bass worked so well right. with that. So, but you don't realize that at the, I didn't realize that so much at the mm -hmm. time. You just go in on pure, Instincts and youth right. and adrenaline. Yeah, there, Many years later, it's one of the most meaningful things I've ever been part right. of. And to this day, he hasn't really had live. He hasn't had that many foils like yourself and John Paul Jones. I mean, 
the two of you have been have been able to have that conversation musically on stage. But if you think about, it, there's not been that many people that have had that long of an exposure playing live, where the songs would evolve and grow and and, and go into different directions. That's quite a that's a quite a, a legacy for for the both of you to have together to think back on all those years of. I mean that that's really one of the things that we live for is those really magical moments on stage. We don't get them all the time, but when they do arrive, it's quite a gift. So I'm sure there's probably many memories that you have of those extended solos where it's a, 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 a nice repart musical repartee. Oh yeah. Yeah. And of course I didn't fully appreciate it at the time. Right. I, I understood that it was good mm -hmm. And that there was something happening that was uh, felt unique and felt real. I mean, you know, just you, you have that. We were standing next to each other a lot of the time doing all that stuff, looking at each other in the eye and all the, the, the smiles and the little push. And, and yeah. that. it just felt like that's just the way it is. Yeah. I didn't realize that that was as rare as it was because I hadn't been, been in too many bands and I certainly hadn't been in a band of that level. Right. I'd, I'd had that kind of um, interaction a little bit with Roy, but it's, it's a different, a different, different dynamic, situation. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's uh, acoustic guitar vocals and um, the vo the fretless bass fit perfectly with that as well. But for two instrumental uh, uh soloist so to speak or or musical pushing back on each other with a three-piece which it was essentially when we were when we were soloing sure. is drums yeah. bass and guitar it's wide open and so i don't think he would have done those extended things if he wasn't having fun yeah. if it wasn't that pushback yeah and that so but i say yeah. you know i didn't know this at the time <laughs> i was just doing it Oh, to go back. Yeah, we always I mean, say that uh, we don't, you know, if we then <laughs> we don't know that we're in the golden era at the moment that we're in it or the magic time that we, uh, we look back and go, Oh, that was that. I did. That was that really magical time. I didn't, I don't, I don't think it, you perceive what it is because you're just doing it and you're reacting to the moment. Uh, I find it interesting. Yeah. And if somebody has said to me at 22, 23, 24, it's all downhill from here. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I did have some of that magic yeah. with uh, Blue Murder. Now, yeah. So I was very right. fortunate to have um, the two bands at that level mm -hmm. where the chemistry was very authentic yeah. and, and very powerful yeah. and potent. And, of course, Blue Murder is a very different band to to the firm. But the, the, the essential chemistry and the musical rapport that we had between us uh, was right. still just as potent. Yeah. It, it's, it's interesting that the, uh, I think you may have shared a story with me, how the, the, one of the first things that, you, that you, you guys did collectively with the firm as you're getting together was maybe a Righteous Brothers tune. Or was that later? That was I can't read that. No, that was that was on the first album, but it was uh, a little later. later. Okay. But what that was, uh, I think we had most of the songs ready. I was still wasn't in the band oh, at gotcha. this point. Okay. I was 
doing an extended audition because (laughs) yeah it's not only about the playing i'd known jimmy uh for a a month or so at that point we played a lot and you know but this is a band it's got to be about the vibe it's got to be about the hang it's not about just the playing and so we we were coming towards getting ready i still say i hadn't been offered the gig at that point but we did a a cover of uh, what who was it? It was Jimmy that said, do you want to, do you want to do a cover or something? And um, Paul said, well, how about uh, you've lost that love and fear, the Righteous Brothers. And, um, and I'm glad they didn't say Led Zeppelin or Bad Coke because I didn't know yeah. any at that point. They wouldn't have been right yeah, to have done it anyway. Yeah, it would have felt very odd. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so they're like, yeah, okay. And thankfully, I knew that oh, song. Yeah. And so um, – I knew in the middle section, I knew the changes, um, but I'm thinking, wow, it's quite orchestrated, that piece. Right. There's a lot of arrangement mm-hmm. on that. Yeah. We're a three-piece. How are we going to uh, – it's an opportunity to to fill it out with something. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking, yeah, I've got the root notes, but it needs to have you know, a lot more filled. So I was thinking, okay. And then that the part that came out of that – uh, go and listen to it, folks, if you're not familiar yes, with it. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it was um, it was just a part that, that just kind of played itself. Right. And after that 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 one, they, the guys looked around at me and, uh, and with approval. Yeah. And Jimmy's mentioned that, hey, we might have you come by and play that on the album. Yeah. Still wasn't asked to be in the right, band. Yeah. And but that was so what you're saying that was the first indication that that, that I might have a little bit more involvement than just uh, sitting in on the rehearsals, and uh, so yeah, that was definitely a turning point. And then, uh, whatever point uh, after that, that was I said, You want to be in the band, and that was it. And we were pretty much right in the studio, and it was so well rehearsed, everything was first or second take, and all live together. It was magical. And um, what, the first album, I assume, came together quicker. Both were very oh, quick. Yeah, yeah they, they didn't like to hang around in the studio. <laughs> Everything on the we did. Uh, in fact, it was probably quicker on the second album, right. just because we were already a band, whereas right. we weren't on the first one properly. Yeah, it was. It was. Uh, we would go in and do a couple of weeks of. Uh, pre-production and then going straight in the studio and once again the second album everything was first or second yeah. take i mean it's amazing to work with people at that level right. there there was a period of time in the early 80s where it felt like that there was they started throwing this title around supergroup you know i think it, it came as an outgrowth of either, bands were evolving and changing and uh so you had some of the guys in yes with Carl Palmer doing the Asia thing. Yeah. Um, but the firm actually, it never felt like that. It, it's, it seemed like a, maybe it was because of the chemistry and just the, the it never, it seemed like a very, or I, I remember the, it seemed like a very organic like band thing where you felt like it felt like that. And uh, the buildup, as I recall was because it was only a couple of years after John Bonham had passed. And that was like the next, I think maybe, Maybe Robert hadn't even done the Honey Drippers album. Maybe I can't remember the time frame, but yeah, I think it. I think it had come out, but I'm not. 100% but that was sure, a yeah. for for there to be a band with Jimmy because Jimmy wasn't 
a very high profile person for the, the years right after John had passed. So the buildup for so many, <laughs> like, oh my gosh, this band. Yeah, absolutely. And it's got, you yeah, know, I, and it's got, you know, Paul Rogers and you and Chris. And I was like, oh my God, I, I can't remember anything for a new band. I mean, it's happened since then because there's been more time, but I can't remember a buildup being quite as big for this new project. And, uh, really? yeah, I, I, I mean, I, a lot of it too is back to the time because I was a teenager in high school and had Zeppelin and Pink Floyd pictures and posters all adorning all four walls. So anything Zeppelin or, or Pink Floyd was a huge, but it just, it was a very exciting, uh, experience this to, uh, to catch the the live show and the album and and the the single that came, I just oh my gosh, this is so cool because I wasn't. Well, here's oh, go ahead. here's the thing. It was in England. It was not that way. I'm sure there was a little bit. You know, the English pretty reserved and all that. <laughs> right. And so yeah. Prove it to me, Ken. over here, I I didn't realize just. I was just hanging with Jimmy. You didn't see any of that, uh, shall we say, idol worship, that that larger-than-life status that uh, that Jimmy clear, clearly has over here. I mean, he he would he couldn't walk anywhere. Where in England, we would just go down the pub and it would be very relaxed and everything. And uh, but over here, he he's larger than life, and so I didn't get that anticipation and that that build up but it was so wild to come over here you, you first place we went to was dallas and uh the reunion arena as it was back mm. then and we saw you two the the night before in the same place i'm like wow this place is big <laughs> and, uh, right. i'm playing here tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> And it's them that it really dawned upon upon me that's like, oh, wow, this is this is uh, this is not playing. I mean, as amazing as the Hammersmith right. Odeon was, just because of the history of that place, it still holds about twenty three. No, maybe a few more, but five thousand tops okay. yeah. people. And but it felt intimate. It's like a little cinema theater yeah. thing. And you you go from that to Madison Square Garden and, and the Forum, and it's like wow, this really does feel big. It feels like it's on a whole new level. And of course, the the British audiences are quite reserved mm-hmm. as well. I mean, you know, they'd be quite polite. They they yeah. clap and uh, jolly good. That was nice, very nice. What's next? And uh, but you know, the over here the crowds are nuts. The yeah. girls are flashing their boobs, and and it's like wow, it's is. You really did. And we had our own plane. We're driven around in limousines. Right. We're, we're staying at the Four Seasons everywhere. It felt like it was just a, a whole yeah. new level. And, and then you know, seeing how people responded to Jimmy and all that, it's right. like, wow. So I didn't get a sense of that. Plus, I was not, I was not <laughs> um, touched by Led Zeppelin right. in, in the early days yeah. either. So. I was, uh, you know, it's a whole different, probably just as well. Right. Because I just, if I was in awe of Jimmy Page going into Never that, I may not have been able to have done yeah, the gig. Yeah, that that, that so, suited you. I mean, that served you very, very well to not be somebody that kind of had to carry that energy into a rehearsal room or just a, a jam session where you were awesome. 
awestruck because frankly that 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 would have would have <laughs> not boded well because they would they want they want a they want a teammate or they want a they want a you know or a a uh, a family member because it's essentially a family at that point when you're on the road that often everything you get to know each other very quickly very a few a few yep. shows into the tour you you know everybody's you know business yes. all the things all the things you don't need to yeah. know <laughs> some of the, some of the things you don't the peccadillo or whatever they call it which we keep to ourselves you know there's that right. that yeah. uh, unwritten uh, warrior law that uh you know, i'm i mean i'm writing a memoir because all a lot of this mm-hmm. stuff is fascinating right. and uh but it's also fascinating because there's a lot of things that happen connections and things that didn't happen mm-hmm. and i it's fascinating to me I, I we really as i've mentioned earlier you really don't get the full perspective of things until much later you don't understand why or how things played out in certain ways and the things that have been hard for me to understand at the time i mean as you as you know i was offered the pink floyd gig in in uh, 1987 Mm -hmm. couldn't do it i had to turn it down and um and that was very very painful at the time and um but it, it, in hindsight, many years later, I can see how it was for the best. Right. Yeah. Who's to know? Things are still unfolding. It's like you don't know until the very end. And you have that big <laughs> flash of uh, a <laughs> right. movie where you see your whole life in a second. Right. And there's, yeah. a, oh, now I understand. Yeah. But uh, I can see how my path, my life's path would have gone yeah. potentially a very different and and potentially dangerous way uh from that point if if certain doors had been open yeah. and it fascinates me because also yeah, back then in the firm days i was uh i was a partying fool i was uh, <laughs> uh drinking doing all the stuff right? right and by the time the 80s ended it just like ended almost like a switch going right. off as like, okay that's done the, the party's over and it was in more ways than one. It was like shortly after that was when when Nirvana and all the the music scene changed. Right. Uh, things changed in a in a big way, but that was just a kind of a reflection of everything. But you know, it's like it was time for me to stop drinking, and I was ready for it. I wanted it. I just stopped. Yeah. It was it, I was done with it. Yeah. It's like that chapter. Okay, but I wonder back in the firm days. I, I don't think I would have been able to have hand, to been able to have handled or hung with those guys. Everybody was partaking and and drinking back in those days. I, d- I doubt if I'd have been able to at 22 years old if I was a clean living, right. you know, focused, <laughs> meditating boy. If I'd have been able to have handled that sure, situation, sure, exactly, yeah. You know, I, I am prone to anxiety. People probably wouldn't believe that, but I, I'm doing great now. But when I sobered up, that anxiety was right <laughs> forefront. Oh, and right. so getting on stage yeah. and dealing with other humans was terrifying to right. me. I was a nervous wreck. And, you know, the, the drink was the way of hiding behind uh-huh. that and, and dulling my own mess of a <laughs> of a brain and mind right. that couldn't handle real life and so i escaped and yeah i i was able to 
to to play with those guys and make some great music along the way. I ha- I'm happy to say, thankful to say, that in all my inebriated <laughs> states, I never blew a gig, I never blew yeah. a note, and yeah. it made some music that stands the test of time. Yeah. So, yeah, and but and yeah, it, it, it informs the career that you have today. I mean, it's there's a well, yeah, yeah so. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me how that stuff happens and I get very introspective about mm-hmm. it and, uh, you know, it still happens. I mean, events that happen that point you in certain ways. Why mm-hmm. did it have to happen? But knowing that it's for the best. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I have to write this <laughs> stuff down because you can't, you can't express no. it. But, it's, yeah. but all this also goes in what you do creatively. Yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a big meditator. I'm big on connecting my life with the universe in the best way I can and getting my little ego out of the way. And as I've noticed that my awareness and my creativity opens up a lot more when the more that I do that. You've been listening to the Guitar Hang Podcast, episode number five with my special guest, Tony Franklin. Thank you for tuning in and stay tuned for upcoming episodes. <laughs>